I'm going to begin this morning with a prayer from Psalm chapter 40. Not the entire psalm, but some excerpts from it. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me, and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. He has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and be amazed, and they will put their trust in the Lord. Oh, the joys of those who trust the Lord, who have no confidence in the proud or in those who worship idols. Oh, Lord, my God, you have performed many wonders for us. Your plans for us are too numerous to list. You have no equal. If I tried to recite all your wonderful deeds, I would never come to the end of them. You take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. Now that you have made me listen, I finally understand. You don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. And I said, look, I have come as it is written about me in the scriptures. I take joy in doing your will. For your instructions are written on my heart. And may all who search for you be filled with joy and gladness in you. May those who love your salvation repeatedly shout, the Lord is great. As for me, since I am poor and needy, let the Lord keep me in his thoughts. You are my helper and my savior. Oh my God, do not delay. Lord, I'm grateful this morning that you are a helper and a savior, that you lift us out of despair and you set our feet on solid ground, that you give us new songs to sing, and that the work you do in our life is a source of amazement. I just, I, I read the psalm, Lord, and it just, just makes me think, uh, it's, it's been a year where I could forget those things, and I think we can forget those things just because there's so many distractions, so many things that take our eyes off of you. And I pray, Lord, that this Advent season, um, as we're coming out of it or moving into it, depending on either way. Uh, Lord, may it refocus us on just the reality of Christ and the promise that Christ in us is the hope of glory. Amen. All right. I really only have um, one announcement today, I think. And that announcement has to do with, if you're on our prayer page, I give updates for the offering just to show how we're doing for the budget this year. And this year, in spite of all the craziness, as of last week, I think we were $1,000 over budget, like $1,000 in the black after 51 offerings approximately. You're making signals at me. It's okay. I'm close. I'm close. But I'm not completely right. Uh, anyway, just uh, a reminder, this is our last offering of the year, and it would be delightful during, well, not just any year, but in a COVID year, just to make sure that we finish the year well. So if I could just encourage you as you're able to give joyfully here at the end of the year for the church, it's uh, a blessing. I mentioned on the prayer page that we've been praying a lot this year for financial health for the church just because it's been such a strange year. And as you give, you're an answer to prayer which is just kind of cool to watch um, that unfold in real time. 
And I have to add this story. Some of you already know this. Uh, just in the last week, there is a missionary in um, Nepal who gives money to Nagaland, which our church used to be involved in quite a bit. They just give money through our church. It's a way that um, it gets there. And so they found out, like, we had a fire, and it's been a year, and they, this missionary gave us $1,000 um, and said, put it in your COVID fund. It's been a hard year for people, so bless people in your church with us. So I just, I don't know. It, it's heartwarming to me to see just those little ways that God is, reminds us that we are in his sights. All right, I basically wrote a book of notes this week, so we're just going to get into it. Uh, I will tell you ahead of time, if you're watching online, you might want to click on the link to the sermon notes because there's a lot of footnotes. There's references to previous sermons going on here. And rather than re-preaching everything, I'm just footnoting stuff. Uh, By the way, uh, we've got notes over there on the table if anybody wants printed notes to follow along as we go throughout the morning. All right, so we're going to tell the story of the Christmas dragon this morning, which might be new to you, but it's there. It's in Scripture. We just don't often talk about it a lot as a Christmas story. So we're going to start reading in Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. I'm going to let the footnotes explain a lot of this. I'm just going to go through the text. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. I'll just note this. That quote in itself lets us know that at this point, John is talking about Jesus. And now we get back into this apocalyptic language. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of 1,260 days. The dragon pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for, once again, 1,260 days, out of the serpent's reach. That from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Merry Christmas. That's going to be our Christmas Eve text next year, I think, uh, just to throw us for a loop. So once again, without going into all the footnotes, it's apocalyptic literature. The imagery is kind of unusual. You may have heard it before. You may not have. The bottom line is at least part of this is a story about the birth of Jesus. And in fact, this is how it unfolds in Matthew's gospel. And now I'm reading from Matthew 2, beginning in verse 13. When the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, and he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. 
And when Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So if you read those side by side, the thing from Matthew and the thing from Revelation, something's going to stand out to you. There's this red dragon. There's this, this image, and we'll get to it in a second, of, of powerful forces arrayed against the people of God. And the thing you read after Jesus' birth, which is such an excellent uh, feel-good story, and I mean that in the best possible way, the next thing you read in the account is what's called the slaughter of the innocents. In fact, December 27th is a day in the historic church calendar that remembers the slaughter of the innocents, two days after Christmas. And don't get hung up on the actual uh, time frame when it unfolded. But the idea is simply that two days after peace and joy and love and truth embodied in the world, you begin to face this reality of life between the advents. So what happens after Christmas is that the dragon will wage war against those who keep God's commands and who hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So I think John intends for us to understand the dragon to be Rome or part of the leadership of Rome. And if we compare this to how Babylon is used in the Bible to symbolize something more than itself, I think we'll see it. So Babylon's an actual city, right? It becomes an image of all the great cities that love pleasure, that love excess, that love indulgence. And as you read through the way the term Babylon is used in the Bible, and it's also used in the book of Revelation, you'll see that it's, Babylon is constantly coming against the people of God. And so in Revelation, Babylon is portrayed as a prostitute who is seducing the people of God through the love of pleasure. So now Rome is also an actual city. But then based on the experience of God's people with Rome, Rome becomes this bigger-than-life archetype once again. It represents how power can seek to control and undermine and attack God's people. And so in Revelation, we see something about the reality of life after Christmas, and that is we can be attacked by both power and pleasure, by both Rome and Babylon. Or we can be seduced by both power and pleasure. We can be seduced by Rome and Babylon. And so for 2,000 years, the dragon has come against the people of God. While Revelation is telling a particular story, it's also telling a story that applies over and over again throughout human history. I was thinking this week, I don't know if you've ever seen these old maps where they've got here there be dragons, like the map gets to the end of the earth, and it's not really the end of the earth, but it's this idea that this was uncharted territory, so map makers got as far as they knew how to go, and then they just put kind of a warning. And it doesn't look like they actually believed there were dragons there, but the idea was if you go past here, there's chaos, and so they would write on the maps, here there be dragons. And it strikes me that in some ways that's what John is telling us, that in this life, here there be dragons everywhere now, not just in uncharted territory off of maps, but this is a reality of life. When I was teaching uh, literature at Traverse City Christian, I would make my seniors read two dystopias. It was Brave New World in 1984, because Brave New World's about Babylon, about how a culture of excess and luxury and pleasure can both seduce and control people. And 1984 is about power, how the Romes of the world can step in and control people. 
And I think here in the United States, we get to battle both. I, I think w the dragon we face is one that's one of both power and pleasure. We get Rome and Babylon mixed in. And that's probably for another sermon, so now I'll get back on track. We've been talking for a couple weeks about the two advents, the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and that we're living between the two advents. And we talked a couple weeks ago, Advent begins in darkness, but Advent ends in light. So we have the hope of Jesus behind us. That's the coming of Jesus. We have the hope of Jesus in front of us. It's the return of Christ in power and glory. And then we have the promise of God with us as a stabilization for us as life unfolds. And so on Advent, we focus on love and peace and hope and joy. Uh, those are the four key ones, but there's plenty of things that we could focus on that have a foundation in the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the future return of Christ. But right away in Scripture, you see life between the two Advents begin to unfold, and the Bible doesn't look away from the reality of how hard that kind of life is. Jesus is born. Mary and Joseph have to flee to Egypt. Egypt, which you have to think for someone who was an Israelite, was just like going back to a nightmare. Like this was the land that represented oppression and slavery for them. And then they lived separated from their family, perhaps their livelihood, I assume from their livelihood, for months, perhaps years. The place that they leave, which is populated by Jewish people, Herod comes in and he slaughters the children of that similar age. And so right away you see what John talked about. The dragon's unleashed. There, there was this beautiful moment in the history of the world, but the dragon comes back, and darkness begins to push into the light. And so as John makes clear in his apocalypse, this war will be ongoing. This dragon hates light, hates truth, hope, goodness, everything that Jesus represents. You ever had the experience where life is going pretty well, and you're feeling pretty good? And then suddenly your legs just get taken out from under you? Yeah, I think that's the idea. This is part of the reality of life. I, I phrased it this way. When life feels kingdom good, like, yeah, I'm finally flourishing as I think I should be as a Christian, expect some pushback. Expect war. I mean, this is the story in Revelation. We don't just get born into a world where everything is easy. We know that. When we get the new birth into Christ, we're not birthed into everything is easy. I think we know that too. Expect war. This is one of the messages of Revelation. It's often after great moments of God's revelatory light that darkness pushes in hard. Now, I've not been persecuted in any meaningful sense of the word. If you go around the world and you look at what's happening to Christians in other countries and the price they pay for being a Christian, we have it really good, right? We don't make top 50 lists when people publish stuff about persecuted peoples. But that's not to say we don't face our own trials and our own temptations. What I face in life as a Christian has to do with a spiritual or emotional or relational darkness that pushes in. And so the challenges I face aren't someone coming after me, threatening to cut off my head or burn me alive. What I have is... Rome and Babylon, in which I live, that also makes war against me. And there's this dragon. I like this image. Sorry, I'm a mythology kind of guy, so we're going to come back to the dragon a lot today. There's this dragon that I have to acknowledge the reality as a follower of Christ, that there are spiritual forces in the universe and in the world that are arrayed against followers of Christ. 
And so I was thinking about the times where I have felt this, like these kingdom good moments, things have gone really well, and then what follows after them are these really hard moments. So here's my list. You might have your own list as we go through this. So I get to go teach in Costa Rica occasionally. I'm there for about a week, and it's always been just this profound, moving experience where I'm like, yeah, I'm flourishing in what God's called me. I felt like I channeled Dylan there for just a little bit. I'm flourishing in this thing that God called me to do, and, and the students are just eating it up, and it's this fantastic thing, and it's just like this spiritual high you kind of ride. And then I come home, and I swear I get sick every time. And I come home, and I'm just moping around the house, and then I get depressed. Like, this was this great week, and then I come back, and on the other side of that, there's something that pushes in. It says... Um, I mean, I, th- I think it's the dragon kind of edging its way in and won't leave me alone. It's the sermon that I'll give, like today, maybe. Maybe. We'll see how this ends. Where after a sermon, I can feel really good. I'm like, nailed it. And then Monday, I'll spend the whole day just consumed by anxiety and second-guessing and thinking, you know, I said that that way. That could have been misinterpreted. And I wonder if I should have said that. And I'll, And it's just this off of this kingdom feel-good moment into this time of testing. It's having a fantastic vacation with my wife like we did a couple, a couple months ago, and then two weeks later just feeling like there's this chasm between us relationally. Like, what happened? That chasm's gone. Don't anybody get concerned. Uh, it's one day just feeling like I'm a really good dad. Like, nailed it. I should probably write books. And the next day, the wheels just come off, and I think, what am I doing? What am I doing? It's thinking one day how much I love the people in my life, and I'm talking now more broadly than just my family. Man, I just, this is so good. God's given me this group of people that are just so meaningful to me, and then the next day, having one of them just tear my heart out. It's having a much better financial year at church than we thought. And then realizing we're still cutting budget for next year because we've treaded down a bit toward the end of the year. Um, Sheila and I were talking about this last week, and I have dragons on my mind this week. All right, so work with me here. Sheila, one morning, she goes, man, I had this dream last night that was so unsettling. Like, I don't just, like, I could tell as she told me that she was, un, it was, there was some chaos that had entered her life from a dream. It's like, I, don't, I have no idea where it came from. It was terrible. And I said to her, I've had a couple of those recently too, like just really unsettling dreams. And as I think back, we've had this really great um, Christmas time. We've spent a lot of time with our kids. We've played games. There's been a lot of laughter. There's been these great things. And I told her, uh, and I think this was my exact quote, I think the dragon's making war. Just in the sense, like, what is going on? What is robbing us of this joy? I, I kind of had to laugh. One more example. This is probably about five examples too many. But I've just been thinking about, I've been trying to uh, embrace the idea this is a pattern of life because we're going to get to where we go with it. So yesterday, um, my wife would like some floating shelves in the kitchen. You know what floating shelves are? They're a nightmare. That's what they are. So my, life would like, my wife would like floating shelves in the kitchen. And so Friday night, we had a great time playing games 
And uh, Friday, Friday was great. I mean, it was Christmas, for crying out loud. But it was also really good. So I'm like, I'm making floating shelves Saturday. And let me tell you, the wheels came off of my attitude in about 30 minutes. And after about five trips to Menards, because I kept buying the wrong thing, and they didn't have the right size. And did you know that if you try to make a hole in wood for the little pegs that do the floating shelves, if you buy a drill and it says six-inch drill, it does not go six inches into the wood. It goes five inches into the wood. So you have to go back and buy another drill. But they don't make seven- and eight-inch drills. They make 12-inch drills. And so you start the hole, and it's an inch, and then you put this huge paddle Okay, I'm going to revisit that soon, and I like my attitude today. I don't want to go back there. But it just struck me yesterday, that is such, what happened? Like, Friday was great. And then Saturday, I, my family kind of gave me some distance for most of the afternoon. Like, ah, okay, but that's the pattern. John warned us. John warned us that's the pattern. The dragon is there. Leviathan is lurking, right? It wants to come in and mess up our joy. So here's what I come back to. How does it end? Okay, I know how it ends. For me as a Christian, every story ends with resurrection and life. Not just spiritually, but eternally. So I know how the story ends, right? How will history end? It's going to end with the return of the king at a new heaven and a new earth. I have that joy set before me, the second advent. What happens when my life ends? Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Right? So I know all of these things. So I know the beginning. We just spent a month talking about the first advent, the birth of Jesus. I know the beginning. I know how it starts. I know it was brought to me in Christ. I know the end. I know where the story's going. It's this middle part that keeps tripping me up. The light shines, the darkness pushes in. The light shines, the darkness pushes in. It's just life between the advents. So my question is, and I'm going to skip a whole page of notes here because I have way too many. The question is, how do these dark valleys work in our favor? Because I mean, God knew what the deal was, and he didn't forsake us. So maybe ask it this way. How does God take the war leveled by the dragon and use it for our good and for God's glory? Because apocalyptic literature is always literature of hope. Now, we've been talking the last couple of weeks about an apocalypse is simply unveiling. It's an unveiling of something we didn't know before. And in that genre in Scripture, there are always stories of hope. They're not written to scare us. They're not written to give us fear. They're not apocalyptic literature is written to give us hope. So if there is unveiling in my life, if God unveils something to us, it's going to be to bring us hope. So I want to go back to what we talked about in the last two weeks when we talked about the prophets in the Old Testament. What did they roll out to the people of God as, as a way to live in the hope that Christ offers. And I think it boils down to one word, and that's repentance, which isn't the word you're expecting to hear. But let me explain what I mean by that. We get verses, those who have walked in darkness have seen a great life, right? We've been reading Isaiah and Malachi and Jeremiah the last couple of weeks. The prophets roll it out. The light is coming. God has something for you. But the prophets also tell the people how they get into that light. I mean, God provides the light. God does the miraculous work of salvation. But how do you live in the light? And the prophets, over and over and over, their theme is repentance. 
In fact, I, I think I would argue that the Bible has far less to say about the dragons out there than it does the dragons in here. And what I mean by in here is both our hearts and in the people of God. I'm going to get to what I mean by that in a second. I think we tend to think of the dragons like I have it so far, almost like a smog kind of dragon for those of you who are Hobbit fans, as you all should be. Um, and if you don't understand this analogy, watch The Hobbit. So smog is this huge dragon, right? comes from this mountain over there, and it comes down into a town called Lake Town, and it just destroys it, right? So this is huge menacing dragon from out there, and it comes in, and you can pick up uh, these weapons of war, and you can fight, at least if you're one guy who has really good aim. But it, it's, a, it's an easy analogy to wrap our minds around and what we want warfare to be like. We want there to be a known enemy from somewhere else that we can fight against. Uh, and it, it's a noble quest. And it's the image of revelation, I might add. It is the image of revelation. So I don't want to overlook it. The dragon will make war against the saints. There are absolutely spiritual smogs that fly over spiritual lake towns. Right now, look around the world. Like I said before, for the last 2,000 years up till now, the persecution of the church is a very, very real thing. Right? So I, I'm not overlooking that. The Bible tells us in those situations, just stand strong, stand strong. The story ends in glory even if you wade there through blood. But that's just part of the story. Because God's people in the Old Testament, they didn't go into exile into Babylon, and they weren't conquered by Rome because Babylon and Rome were so overwhelmingly strong. Israel had Yahweh, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? And God had shown himself over and over throughout the Old Testament, I'll fight for you, I'll fight for you. So it wasn't that Rome and Babylon were stronger than God. That couldn't be the case at all. God's people ended up in captivity and bondage because they trashed their covenant with God and because they reaped the consequences of what they had sown, and God had warned them about that. So if, if old covenant realities, in a physical sense, uh, unveil something to us about new covenant realities in a spiritual sense, uh, and I think they do, I think we arrive at this conclusion. Our greatest threats as Christians and as a church are not out there. Remember in 2 Timothy, there was the word Diablo for people that have made their way into the church? Diablo, the devil, the dragon is in here too. It has been ever since Eden. It's that classic horror movie thing. The call's coming from inside the house, right? That's the idea. Uh, say it this way. There is no person, politician, law, educational system, Hollywood star or organization that can make us give in to Babylon or Rome. There is no dragon that can force our hand or batter down our spiritual doors. The gates of hell cannot prevail against a holy church. But we can embrace temptation. They may not be able to force our hand, but we can choose to lie in Babylon's bed or sit on Rome's throne. They can't storm the gates of heaven, but I can begin to worship their power and influence and pleasure. The most thoroughly conquered people are not those who are too weak to plot resistance. It's those who see no reason to resist. So if you read through the Old Testament, the prophets don't pull any punches. God's people gave in to sin. Often God's people didn't see their sin. They didn't even think of it as sin. They just thought of it as going about life. And they ended up embracing it. They didn't see the darkness as darkness. 
They maybe even saw it as light. And so we, we read last week, arise and shine, for your light has come. And this idea is that a crucial step in shining for Christ is being in the light of Christ. We use the analogy of the solar lights that I have at my house where they soak in the light all day and then at night they shine. And that's the imagery here. Arise, absorb the light of Christ so that you can shine in the darkness. And when the prophets are asked over and over by the people of God, what do we do? The prophets say, repent, repent, over and over again. Let's look further in Revelation since we started with Revelation. John writes this in Revelation 18, 4 and 5. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. That's out of Rome, out of Babylon. Lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. Right, that's the solution. Come out of her. We read Jeremiah. God told his people through the prophet Jeremiah that if they sought the face of God, that their nation would experience blessing, that God had told them was in store for them in a very particular way if they were true and loyal to God. And if they didn't, Jeremiah also warns, Bad stuff's coming. They were always going to be God's covenant people. But their experience of being in that covenant was going to be radically different based on the posture of their hearts. The reality was that the flourishing of the people of God in the Old Testament had almost nothing to do with the nations around them. It had everything to do with how seriously they took the covenant. The Old Testament physical realities point toward New Testament spiritual realities, which I think they do that I think our flourishing as Christian individuals and as a church will have almost nothing to do with what our empire does to us or for us. It'll have everything to do with how seriously we take our covenant. And that's how I think we experience the life abundant that Jesus promises in Scripture. It feels like this was a year where I heard a lot about the desire for revival in our land. And rightly so, I might add probably a good message for every year. But we also want revival in our churches. We want revival in our homes. We want holiness. We want the rejection of sin and the love of justice of mercy in ourselves and in our nation. So where does this start? Starts in the church. Right? Judgment begins where? The house of God in the church. Right? Well, we want revival. Right? Revival is something that God intends, I believe, to begin in his people. And then it spreads out from his people as revived people become the salt and light that God intends for them to be. Cultures cannot become more holy if the church does not become more holy. Churches cannot become more holy if we fail to repent of our sinful contribution to the brokenness of the world. And then beg first for forgiveness from God and those we have wronged. And then for God's wisdom, love, and strength to walk in righteousness.